Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Hooch? I am excited to be here. Alright, 2020. Another pod about 2020. <laughs> A shit-mad year for many reasons. It's obviously going to go down as the most culturally infamous year of our lifetimes. And what was so strange about that, while the world was on fire and the United States were anything but united, I had the best movie year of my life, no question. I'd have to agree. I watch more movies in calendar year 2020 than I have in any other year. And when we realized we were going to be stuck inside for the foreseeable future, I made the quick and easy decision to watch as many new-to-me movies as possible. No TV or streaming shows, no rewatches unless it was for this podcast. I had to watch old movies. I had to cross all that shit off the list that I've been meaning to. The hidden noirs I uncovered, the favorite actor I never fully explored, the nine-hour documentary that was eluding me, ancient Oscar winners, all stuff like that. So with 2020 being such a great movie year for both of us, we figured we would live record our personal conversation about our year in movies. We're just going to talk about a lot of movies we watched, all of which we really, really liked. Again, we saw a lot, so we're not going to talk about all of them, but we're going to toss out a handful that meant a lot to us, and then at the very end, we'll rank a few of them in a nice, cute top 10 list, and it's going to be a very open, conversational, unpolished talk, hangout episode, so we hope you enjoy hanging out with us. Yeah, we're just going to jump into it. Before we start, please give us a follow on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. We're on there all the time. We're running a really cool feature right now. Nick is hosting it where we're listing our favorite movie every year. And that's we've gotten a lot of cool engagement from that. And it's a good insight into our movie taste. So W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Engage with us. Yes, please. All right, I'll go first in my handful of picks. My 2020 movie year all started with film noir. And a great one for me to plug up top is Detour, 1945, directed by Edward G. Ulmer. Yeah, Nick's going crazy because I knew you liked this one. Yeah. This is where my year started with this tight one hour and eight minute long film noir about a hitchhiking nightclub pianist. Detour, it just it doesn't ask a lot of us and it's so much fun. And then to get a little film geeky, this is going to be a really film geek podcast. This movie actually fell into the public domain because it was lost for so long. So that means it has no intellectual property rights and really it can be used anywhere at any time for any reason. That's why Detour is on Amazon Prime, Criterion, Watch TCM, Voodoo, Canopy. It's really easy to find and it's worth finding. Next up, The Stranger, 1946, directed by Orson Welles. This is another public domain movie, so easy to find in a ton of places, including Amazon Prime. I love this one. This is Edward G. Robinson tracking a Nazi fugitive, played by Orson Welles, to rural Connecticut. And according to IMDb, so who knows if this is true, this was Welles' least favorite movie that he directed. And that's such a shame because I think this thing is so much fun. It isn't perfect, but it has some really interesting things in it. It was the first mainstream American movie to feature footage of Nazi concentration camps, which is pretty wild considering this came out in 1946. And there's a really crazy stunt toward the end of the movie in a clock tower that actually wasn't a stunt. Wells had actress Loretta Young hanging like 50 feet in the air without a net. And I was watching it going, hmm. 
that doesn't, that really doesn't look fake to me. They didn't cut away from that. And then I do this research and I, I it kind of sounds like he tricked her to kind of hanging there for a few seconds. And that was, I, I don't know, it's Orson Welles. So That's awesome. it's a good one. The Stranger, easy to find. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited to talk about this next one. I'm still in film noir. This is Nightmare Alley, made in 1947, directed by Edmund Goulding. I'd never seen this before. Holy shit. And the main thing I'll say about this up top is that this is Guillermo del Toro's next film. He's remaking it. I guess it's already done because I, th- I believe it's supposed to come out oh, shit. 2021, so this year. And this thing stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, David Strathairn. I love David Strathairn. So I'm not going to spoil too much about the movie, but when I heard it was being remade, I'm like, okay, I'll, I, I never do that. I never go back to the source, but I'm, I said, all right, give it a shot. And this material is perfect for del toro he's really gonna do some interesting stuff with it um i want to be coy about details this is it's a very very smart noir about a that has a uniquely circular narrative that'll make sense if you see it and tyrone power is the star of the original and bradley cooper he is really gonna go for it in this role that he's gonna do more is gonna be more than just like a monsters movie it believe me so i'm really excited the original is a tough movie to watch legally, to be honest, but there are HD copies available on YouTube for free. I don't usually advocate for people to watch movies that way, but, you know, it was made in 1947, so it's fine. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, you'd really like that one. You would like it knowing what Cooper will do with it. Like when you see what Tyrone Power goes through in it and knowing that Cooper's taking that over, it's like, holy shit. And, and I love film noir. Like, I love that you brought this category up because this was actually my first kind of introduction to learning about film. Yeah. Was all through film noir. And I highly recommend anyone to dive into that genre because it's a genre that's not really done anymore. Um, but for the time that it was, you can't go wrong. There's not really a bad noir movie. There isn't. I mean, some can be stale. Plots are absolutely recycled. But I find in talking to movie buffs that a lot of their a lot of them have that shared way in, which was film noir, because it's a very, very stylized genre of film. And they are all not all. Most of them are very accessible. So they're just fun to watch. And you're watching this. Whether you know it or not, you're getting some film history like coming at you and you're watching a lot of cool shit that you don't see in any other genre. So, yeah, and it is a lost genre, which I'm really glad you said that because my next and final one in this category is a neo-noir. And this is Prince of the City in 1981, directed by Sidney Lumet. This is a really solid crime thriller that would never be made today because it's nearly three hours long. It's true story. It's a character study about a cop played really, really well by Treat Williams, who exposes corruption within the NYPD, not unlike Lumet's Serpico from 1973. Lumet made a lot of films, and this is one of the better ones, and it's only available to pay online to watch, but definitely worth it. All right, I'm going to move on from noir after my handful of noirs. I'm kind of taking listeners like through a chronological order of my viewing that was 2020. After noirs, I thought, well, shit, Monty Clift is my favorite actor, and I haven't seen all of his movies. I should probably take care of that. So I did. He, unfortunately, was only in 17 movies, and I watched them all in order. And up until that point, it was the best makeshift movie marathon of my life. And that started with The Search, 1948, directed by Fred Zinneman, great director. 
And I'm going to start here because this is Cliff's first on-screen performance. He plays an American soldier in post-war Europe trying to help a little boy find his mother. And Cliff is incredible here. He's a real human. And this this performance, it doesn't get the credit. I think I've even talked about this podcast before. It doesn't get the credit that it should because it really marked a shift in American male movie acting. It brought it down. It took away all the pretense, all the heavy-handed macho bullshit, you know, the weird cadence that is very prominent in noir movies that we love, but he just made everything all human. And in my eye, no one did it like him. So The Search, I really love this movie. You have to pay to see it online, but I highly recommend doing so. And I'm glad you said that about Monty Clift because uh, I agree. I, I mean, when when you talk about that switch of the style of acting, um, particularly with men at that time, you know, Brando and James Dean get all the credit, mm-hmm. rightfully so, because they were so good. But Monty Clift is the one that doesn't get any credit for that, and and I and I think you'd probably agree with me. I think he was better. Mm-hmm. There is something so special about watching him that I can only imagine at that time what that must have been like to witness this brand new, fresh style of human to see on screen in that way. He's amazing. Yeah, re- he really is. And yeah, it is a shame that he doesn't get the credit for it because Surge is 1948 and Brando is in... Streetcar in 1951. So, you know, there's a gap there that I don't think should be unnoticed that Clift was on the scene first. And actually, the next movie I'm talking about is also 1948 Red River, directed by Howard Hawks. And this is uh, this is just one of the great Westerns of all time. I can't believe I hadn't seen it before this year. It's just a magical ride. John Wayne, I'm frankly not the biggest John Wayne fan, but he has a polar opposite acting style to Clift. And they got along. It's just a lot of fun to watch them go back and forth, knowing that on screen, off screen, these two could not be more different. But they're really fun to watch banter back and forth. Clift has a lot of sexual tension with his co-star, John Ireland. I mean, they're they're like measuring the size of their guns at one point <laughs> shortly after they meet. It's really, really, it's great stuff. There's a stampede sequence that I have no idea how they shot this. It's an A-plus movie with an A-plus Cliff performance. Red River was actually shot before The Search, but came out later because it's just a bigger movie, probably took longer to edit. It's easy to find. You can watch it on Watch TMC for free. One of the reasons I think Clift isn't maybe mentioned as often as Dean or Brando. Dean, unfortunately, has the tragedy, mm-hmm. which Clift does too. But Dean, I, I mean, that was just cut so, so short, and which is awful. So he just he has those three films that deserve to be endlessly praised, and they are. Cliff, to me, was never loud. Dean was a loud performer. I mean, his a lot of his most prominent scenes that people quote are, you know, loud moments. Brando, he could be still for sure, but Stella, Stella is very loud. Cliff never really did that. He In the Young Lions, maybe, but his energy came from a different place. It came from a much stiller place. And the next one I'm going to talk about, it's called Terminal Station, also known as Indiscretion of an American Wife. I'll explain that. 1953, <laughs> Vittorio De Sica. This is a really, really great romance with a ton of Hollywood controversy attached to it. And this is, I never seen this and it is Clift at his most still, it's about an American woman played by Jennifer Jones, who is having an affair with an Italian teacher played by Clift. The woman is getting ready to board a train to leave Italy, 
but Cliff convinces her to stay. And from there, the movie more or less takes place in the 90 real minutes as she decides to board the next train, which is cool. I love that they were making real-time movies back in the 50s. That's awesome. So here's the controversy. Jennifer Jones was married to the producer of the movie, David O. Selznick. (laughs) You're going to love this. Selznick hated the 89-minute cut of Terminal Station, so he took the movie away from the director, cut 26 minutes from it, and then re-released a 63-minute long version called Indiscretion of an American Wife and released that in America. So the movie has never gotten the credit it deserves. Right now on Amazon Prime, you can go watch it, but you can only watch the 63-minute version. And that sucks because it's like the 89-minute version is great. I'm not saying the 63-minute version sucks. It actually doesn't suck. It's good. It just sucks that that's the only one you can see. So if you have a way to find Terminal Station, I had to do a little digging. It has vibes similar to David Lean's Brief Encounter. It's just good. It's good stuff. It's great, calm, cliffed. Can you believe that? Cutting that much time out of a movie? That's insane. I mean, the movie's only 90 minutes. Yeah, and then to make that, like, that borders on, like, that whole question of what what length is a movie a movie? hate that. It's true. My last Clift one is a tough one. It's called Rain Tree County, made 1957, directed by Edward Dimitrik. Um, I could talk about Clift for hours. We're still going to do an episode about him at some point. The reason why this one is tough is because many people know Monty Clift was in a horrible car accident that nearly killed him. He was really lucky to live. And it messed him up physically. It messed him up emotionally. It kind of led to his death in slow motion 10 years later. This was the movie he was filming when he had his accident. And his co-star in the movie is Elizabeth Taylor. He had his accident leaving her house. And you you have to watch kind of closely, but you can see a shift in his face, like a before and after face. And it's it's just so sad because the movie honestly isn't – it's far from perfect, to be honest. And it's like a three-hour Gone with the Wind knockoff. But it does contain some really genuine Hollywood history within its frames. I mean, they had to, they had a choice to either recast him or wait two months until his face could heal and keep on going. And that was the cheaper option. And it's really sad because he was a very, very tormented guy, but it's weird to be able to see him change like that within one movie. After Clift, I figured now I'm in it, old Hollywood, I've already seen every Best Picture winner. Should I tackle other categories? And I did. I was a madman. I watched every movie that has won an Oscar for directing, all the acting awards, both screenplay categories. A lot of fucking movies, but there was a lot of gold in there. And I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to call out like seven of them really, really quick. The More the Merrier, 1943, directed by the great George Stevens. That won Best Supporting Actor for Charles Coburn. This is... I think you would really like this one. It's a really delightful farce about three people who accidentally end up sharing the same really small apartment for a few days during a housing crisis in Washington, D.C. It's a really early George Stevens movie. He went on to make A Place in the Sun, Shane, Giant. The more the merrier. You can pay to watch this one. Totally worth it. Now I'm going to go dark. (laughs) Johnny Belinda, 1948. This one, Best Actress for Jane Wyman. So the reason why I'm bringing this one up is that older... Oscar movies get accused a lot of being stuffy, boring, tame. They pull punches. But if you do dig a little deep, you're going to find some gold and you're going to find stuff that's really hard hitting. And this 
movie I never heard of called Johnny Belinda is about a kind, deaf-mute woman who is raped and becomes pregnant and can't explain the situation to anyone. So it allows the actress Jane Wyman to give this really incredible performance in a very, very good Oscar movie that has bite. So Johnny Belinda, pay to watch that one online. My next two are going to make a nice double feature. Yeah, A Letter to Three Wives, 1949, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. This one, best director and best screenplay. Addie Ross writes a letter to her three best friends saying she's running away with one of their husbands, but which one? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, the movie's a ton of fun. It moves really quickly. It has extensive flashbacks. It's directed by a master. Mankiewicz was the younger brother of Herman Mankiewicz, who Gary Oldman plays in Mank. Joe Mankiewicz made All About Eve, Julius Caesar, Sleuth. So you're in good hands here. Pay to rent that one, A Letter to Three Wives. And maybe if you're doing that, kind of immediately after put on The Bad and the Beautiful, 1952, Vincente Minnelli. This one's supporting actress for Gloria Graham. And it also wants screenplay, cinematography, art direction, costume design. It's a perfect double feature because Bad and the Beautiful is about a movie producer who manipulates a writer, director, and an actress to get what the producer wants. And like a letter from Three Wives, this one's told extensively in flashbacks, has that three against one narrative structure. They both star Kurt Douglas and they're really worth your time. This was one of the best ones I saw in 2020, certainly. And I think this one's available on Watch TCM for free, which is a pretty cool app for, you know, old TCM movies. Back to the old Filmstruck days. God, Filmstruck was great. That was, a, that was not around long. No. The Hospital, 1971, directed by Arthur Hiller. I cannot believe I had never seen this. This won Best Screenplay for Patty Chayefsky. Uh... Everyone just watched this movie immediately. This it, this movie's a fucking riot. George C. Scott was in Patton the year before. He won an Oscar for it. Super serious. And the next year, he makes this insane, hilarious mystery crime hospital thriller hybrid, all fueled by Patty Chayefsky's words. And it's right up there with one of my favorite Scott performances. And we know Scott can be hilarious in Doctor Strange Love, but he's really, really going for it here as well. So. I love this movie, The Hospital. This is on Amazon Prime right now. I want to rewatch it. Dude, that idea for, um, what was it, the three letters? Mm-hmm. That just like sparked my imagination in such a cool way. What a cool thing to do. And The Bad and the Beautiful actually does the same thing, but it's better. It's a really, really good movie. All right, that was enough for me for a while. Why don't you take it over and throw out some recommendations and then we'll lob it back to me. Well, I don't know about you, Haas, but I don't um, I don't know if maybe you realize this, but this episode, in a lot of ways, is a celebration of our podcast. We um we started recording these episodes in February of 2020. Yep, and that's pretty close. I would have never gotten into some of these movies if it wasn't for this podcast, and this podcast to me has meant so much in terms of everything that we do together as filmmakers. Um, It's furthered my education in film. It's given me a sense of purpose in a year of of anxiety and basically giant question marks in life. So this has been a, a truly, truly meaningful year for me with this podcast. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was thinking about... All these movies that we've seen over this year, 
I wanted to celebrate the podcast by kind of breaking down some of the movies from each episode that we've done that have stuck out for me. From the um, our favorite movies of Los Angeles, these are the three that I can't stop thinking about. The Long Goodbye by Robert Altman back in the 70s. I mean, it's just a really fun movie. Elliot Gold is just fantastic in it. Yeah. And again, like the best example of what a crazy L.A. house looks like. It's so cool. L.A. Story with Steve Martin. This is just the type of comedy that you just don't see anymore. Not slapstick. It's not farce. It, But it is. They're kind of all there. And... uh it's just a style of comedy that I hope comes back. It's, 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 it's a craft. It's an art form to watch comedy like this. And this is a movie that uh, I love this movie so much, Valley Girl. Oh, man. I had never seen Valley Girl until we did this. Me either. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Nicolas Cage is just fucking awesome, man. He, I didn't know that back in that time that he was this heartthrob. Mm-hmm. No disrespect to, to old Cage, but I didn't see him in that way. Then you see this movie and you're like, oh my God, I get it. That movie is so entertaining. I love that movie. Moving on, it's kind of a little bit of a segue uh, into our 1999 category, uh, but also a little bit of LA too. The Limey by uh, Soderbergh, your boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a cool movie. Oh yeah. It, I never saw it. I remember you were telling me that... He did not, like, after he was done and he was in the edit, couldn't find a way to structure the movie in the way that it was in the screenplay. Yeah, screenplay was chronological. That's They shot it with that intention. He's like, this ain't working. And so they uh, keep going. But yeah, they spent damn near a year editing that. And it's the first thing I noticed when the movie started was these crazy cuts mm-hmm. that... I did not mind at all. I love I love cuts like that, but it, it absolutely puts you into a sense of, okay, this is what the movie's going to be like. This is how we're going to go through the story. It just worked. It felt like a dream. It felt real all at the same time. Peter Fonda, love Peter Fonda, and that might be, like, that's an all-timer for me. That That's a great role for him. Oh, yeah. It really, truly is. It's a fantastic Fonda. And so, so so many of these movies that we're talking about are movies that either I never saw before. Uh, I think all the ones that I just listed are ones I never saw. And then in these rewatches, coming to find these movies over again, I found Magnolia all over again. And this movie, I, this was probably maybe the third or fourth time I've seen Magnolia. And it hit home for me in a way that it didn't the other previous times. And I remember we posed a, a question if you had to cut one of those scenes, one of those stories. Mm-hmm. I remember I was like, man, if I really, a gun to my head had to pick, it would probably be the John C. Riley story. Oh, interesting. That's and, and the only reason we brought that up is because that's what PTA has alluded to himself. I would never, ever, you and I would never be like, oh, yeah, that great movie would be even better if they cut out this. Yeah, I only yeah. take those cues from the filmmaker. Yeah, so... I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, and to me, the one that makes sense to cut is my favorite, which is Claudia, who's just stuck in her apartment for a lot of it. And if you cut that and you basically just see her through John C. Riley as like he stops and, you know, has that stop because of the loud music and then they have a date after and then the end is the end, which I'm not going to reveal. 
the movie is shorter and it works, but that's my favorite storyline. And that's PTA's favorite storyline because he said the whole script started from her. Crazy. Moving on into the 1999 category, uh, moved by David O. Russell, Three Kings. I had never seen Three Kings up until this year. What a beast. It's fun, but it's also a really good war movie. Mm-hmm. And what a crazy cast. Spike Jones. Yeah. <laughs> The same year he was nominated for an Oscar for directing being John Malkovich. Like, they're the same year. It's nuts. It's crazy. (laughs) And this was also, too, during a time where, like, in 1999, Mark Wahlberg had not become the megastar that he is that we know him today. Oh, no. Clooney was hitting his leading man stat. Then you get Marky Mark and then Ice Cube and Spike Jones. And I'm just like, what is this when you look back at it? Jamie Kennedy. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Jamie Kennedy. And this is a movie that I know both you and I, um, we definitely felt uh, this rewatch in a different way. The Talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. This movie might damn near be a note perfect movie after upon rewatching it. I, yeah. It's so well done in in every every way. I miss Anthony Mangella. I love that guy's visual style. It's something I noticed in all of his movies. I'm a big fan of Cold Mountain. Are you? I know that movie kind of gets ripped on a lot. I like it. I think it's good. No, and I, I wasn't saying that judgmental way because I was about to say I'm actually – I won't say a big fan. I think there is a lot to appreciate about The English Patient. It gets a mm-hmm. lot of shit because it's like this long, boring – epic that won Best Picture, but there's actually some really, really interesting stuff in it. He made Talented Mr. Ripley three years later. I like that movie better, but yeah, he has a very unique style. It's President Cold Mountain, English Patient, Breaking and Entering, which a lot of people don't talk about. I really like that one. Love that. Yeah, Breaking and Entering is a great call for that. And um, yeah, I I miss his work. I I think Talented Mr. Ripley is the best of his work. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm putting it on this. So I recommend that one. So yeah, so looking back at the podcast, and and those were some of the standout movies that I really enjoyed discovering for the first time or re-watching and as if they were brand new experiences. And then there were a handful of movies that I watched that just really popped. I think the very first movie that I can remember it, watching in 2020 that really blew me away was By the Sea. Ooh. I remember texting you this, and I was like, dude, I am taken with this movie. There is just this quiet conflict between these two in this beautiful, beautiful little town where they're vacationing trying to save their marriage, and Brad Pitt's character is trying to write. I love that romantic Ernest Hemingway writer drinking his, you know, his life away trying to find something to <laughs> yeah. say. So and seeing Brad Pitt of all people uh embody that type of role was really cool. And then watching Angelina Jolie just very, very intriguing to me. I really like not for everybody. Not for everyone, but that was a movie that really 2020, I always think of that movie in a lot of ways. It's a confidently directed movie. And a lot of people didn't like it, didn't make a lot of money, not a lot of people saw it, but it has a vibe, a pace that you mentioned that is very, very deliberate. I really appreciated that movie. I didn't know that she had that kind of slow, delicate sensibility in her directing style, and it was really cool to see. And then this was a brand new discovery that I had just seen for the very first time. 
I'm a giant fan of Wim Wenders. Ooh. I think I've seen almost every other movie that Wim Wenders has done, except for what could possibly be his most well-known, which was Paris, Texas. And I had never seen it up until this year. And I got to interrupt you real quick. That's baffling to me because that is that's like a top five Nick Dostal movie. Like, I know. Just if I was recommending your sensibilities, like, yeah, I had no idea this was new to you. I didn't know that brand fucking new. It, I mean, yeah, just the opening shot of Harry Dean Stanton. Like, why is this guy in the desert? So it's so loose. Nothing is really explained and nothing is taken care of. And the cinematography, Robbie Mueller, Mm -hmm. this might be one of my favorite shot movies I've ever seen. Just gorgeous. Yeah. And what a dichotomy of those opening vast, vast, vast landscapes to where the movie ends up in a room. Yeah. Uh, If you type in like Paris, Texas screenshots, you're going to see an equal amount from that room and that desert. And it takes a really fucking good DP to pull that off. Yeah. The colors. This, what, a, what a range. The greens. That's a very specific color to choose to use in movies. Paris, Texas and Point Blank by John Borman. Two great uses of green. And then I uh, just posted this is my favorite movie from the year of 1987. I rewatched it and it again proved why it is Raising Arizona. By the Coen brothers. Nice. It's just a certain kind of fun that only the Coen brothers could do. And then the last section I want to cover for mine, uh, something we don't really talk too much about, but because it's 2020 and these didn't mean something to me, it was a little bit of TV. I'll generally find a TV show way after it's done. And that is the case for uh, this first one I want to talk about, which is The Leftovers. Ooh. It's a heavy, heavy show. And I think I found weird comfort in it due into the pandemic because um, The Leftovers does deal with a worldwide global situation that is not fun. And you're left with the aftermath of how people are dealing. And I found some type of comfort in feeling like we're all kind of in a weird spot like them. And The Leftovers shows that, especially season one. Things start to change a little bit with season two and season three. But I really, really fell in love with the show at season one. And I got to say, when finally you get to season three, I think season three is finale is my favorite final episode of a television series I've ever seen. I made a note as you were talking, and I was just going to hit on that same thing, because Leftovers is an extremely high concept show. And those are very hard to have a satisfying ending to in the way it really is worth it. It makes the entire show worth it. You're like, wow, they, cause I love that show too. And I could have used more than three seasons of it. But when you nail an ending like that, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Cool. Moving forward two shows that really helped me and my anxiety get through this. Cause I just found a lot of pleasure and joy in watching these shows. One of them, I think a lot of people will agree with is Shit's Creek. Yes, it's funny, but it also has some of the most tender, sweet moments. And the way that those moments are revealed is in such a a subtle and beautiful way that you almost don't even realize that they hit you until the the episode's over. And then another show that I really enjoyed was Master of None. 
I just really dug it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I I enjoyed the humor. I enjoyed the characters. Um, it's just one of those things that it's like, ah, I'm having a rough day. I'll throw an episode of Master and None. It'll be better. Oh, man. This just popped into my head. Isn't there a character in season one where they're like, he goes to a friend's apartment, but he just keeps doing like crunches in the background. Yeah. He's like, can I get a rep in? <laughs> I like yeah. love that. It reminds me of you. I That's love that me. guy. I, and I think we only saw him like once. Yeah, there's only one episode. Those are all really good. I, I'm just going to go through my next ones quick before we get to our top tens. Um, you ended it on such a nice, pleasant note. And I'm going to bring it down. Typical. I'm going to slow things down. I'm going to bring it down. First, I'm going to do a couple uh Art house movies. These are going to be quick because my first one, Wanda, 1970, directed by Barbara Loden. I mentioned on a bonus episode podcast we did, and I just really want to hammer that home because I don't know if you've seen it yet either. But Barbara Loden wrote, directed, she stars in it. This is a fascinating, unseen 70s character study that I absolutely loved. It's available to watch on Criterion right now. This is one of two movies in 2020 that I watched. I was streaming, and before it was done, I had already purchased the Blu-ray. And that's like, that's a special thing because it's like, you know, hey man, it's, it's there to stream. Like, what, what, do you really need to own it? And it's a, it's a decision for me to make like, yeah, okay, I'm going to spend the 40 bucks to do this, but it's worth it. One other head trip art house movie. Glad you mentioned the long goodbye. I have a Robert Altman one that I had never seen called Images. And if my math is right, I guess that would have been the one he made right before the long goodbye. Yeah. I think that's 73. Long goodbye 73. Okay, cool. So Images would have been right before this is a really trippy Altman flick with Sus- Susanna York slowly losing her mind and killing off these threats around her, these men around her. And you don't really know if she's killing them or if she's paranoid schizophrenic. And it's a really contained movie and it would make a great double feature with Altman's three women. And Images is easy to find. Criterion, Amazon Prime, Canopy. Okay, so I'm really going to... I Okay, so after head trip movies, Oscar movies, all this stuff, my last big one to check off was foreign films. And I had, you know, a lot of us have the foreign movie list, and those are kind of the the meat and potatoes of being a film buff. It's like the stuff that maybe you only watch once, and you're like, all right, I did that, I paid attention, I can speak on it. And if you are a hardcore, lifelong, diehard movie fan – Chances are at some point you're going to come face to face with a movie called Shoah. It was released in 1985. And this is a nine and a half hour long documentary about the Holocaust. There's really just no other way to say it. That's what it's about. I Have I sold you yet? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what can I possibly add to this conversation? This is, it's a difficult film, obviously, and one of monumental historical significance. I first heard about this movie when I somehow came across Siskel and Ebert's top 10 films of the 80s. And Siskel had like an asterisk right up top that said, I'm not including this movie called Shoah because it's such a good movie. It shouldn't even be called like a movie. It should be like document to like preserve. So he didn't even include it in his best of 80s list because it was too good to include. And I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta see this. And it took a while for me to finally get to it. And here's... There is something really interesting about the movie is that Shoah is comprised exclusively of contemporary interviews, interviews that were shot for the making of the movie. There is zero archival footage, zero archival photos. You are talking to people, all sorts of people who were there. And instead of seeing the horrors of the Holocaust, which we've all seen, 
we listen to the people who were involved and it's really it's it's just a, it's a really haunting film i knew that i had to get to it eventually i'm glad i did i watched it over 3 nights that's it showa and then after that uh there was another holocaust movie that i just i had been avoiding because these are tough and this is au revoir les enfants i i, I can't you know the french goodbye children directed by <laughs> louis mal and au revoir is it les do you pronounce les enfants les enfants Les enfants, les incompetents, um, <laughs> or Goodbye Children, directed by Louis Mal. This is like this is a really fucking serious movie, um, but I am I am happy I watched it because this movie takes place in a boarding school during World War II, and a new student arrives, and some of the kids, some of these little pissers, have questions about this poor boy's heritage, and it's another tough film. It's another really important one, and. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, Mal made Elevator to the Gallows. You like that one? We talked about that one on the podcast. Movie right. rocks. Atlantic City, My Dinner with Andre. It's a good movie. It's actually on HBO Max right now and good for them. HBO Max has some genuine bona fide classics on there. So that's good. Good to see. I'm glad we keep that one at least a little light. Um, that was amazing. Jesus. My favorite part of the episode. And now getting down to getting down to brass tacks, because I remember texting you about this one and I don't think you've seen it yet. A Man and a Woman. 1966, directed by Claude Leloch. This won Oscars for original screenplay and best foreign film. And this is one of those movies that when it ended, I knew it was a movie for me. One of the best it's kind that I had ever seen. It's about two damaged people who fall in love, but maybe their past traumas are preventing their love from growing. There's a lot of flashbacks. This is like movie 101 stuff for me. I live for movies like this. A man and a woman. It is really hard to find, so but you can buy it on Amazon for $5.99 or rent it for $2.99. I highly recommend that, and I really recommend you watching it. I, re- I think you would like it. There was a sequence toward the end. Just I'm, It's just that perfect European 60s cinema thing. They're doing it with montage and really sparse score, and I'm like, oh, wow. You're like telling this really specific part of this movie so well without saying anything. It's just, ah, it's really great. A man and a woman. Highly recommend. One more foreign film. This is The Sacrifice by Andrei Tarkovsky from 1986, his last film. We both caught up with some Tarkovsky in 2020. He was one director I decided to tackle in full, first film to last, and this was his last film. It starred Erlen Josephin in the lead. He was one of Bergman's leading regulars. This is a guy who's trying to maintain peace right before World War II starts, and it's his efforts are so futile. It has the sparseness of Stalker, but it still makes a lot of its world. Tarkovsky, it's tough. I mean, he was such a great filmmaker and his life was really short-lived. He essentially died from health complications while shooting Stalker just a few years before this. And Tarkovsky was Bergman's favorite director. I like to tell people that maybe as a selling point that helps. It's really interesting that Bergman revered a contemporary so much. And that finally brings me to my Final section, because before we get into our top 10 list, there was another contemporary director that Bergman had great respect for, and that was the great John Cassavetes. Mm. You mentioned how this podcast has kind of helped and enhanced our movie habits, and we talked about Cassavetes a lot in our two-part episode that we released a little while ago, and, you know, please give those a chance if you want. I I don't th- – we have not spent more time on an episode than those. We, we dedicated yeah. – months of this, watching everything, reading everything. 
he's a monumental filmmaker. And I realized in researching those podcast episodes that he was my favorite filmmaker of all time. That's a really big deal to me. And watching his filmography kind of reaffirmed my love for movies in general. It was, there's a music to his cinema language that I receive it wholeheartedly. And you do too. It's like, hey, it might be flawed. I'm using quotes flawed, but this wasn't a guy who was striving for perfection. And I love it because when you start doing research, you see how polarizing Cassavetes still is. It's so hard to get down with Cassavetes because we talked about this. You have to be indoctrinated in his world. You do not watch him lightly. You engage and you participate. So I'm just going to talk about two of his really quick because I've actually, I was, that was really cool that you mentioned some rewatches that impacted you really hard over the year. The most impactful one I had was Husbands, rewatching his 1970 movie. This was one of the first Cassavetes movies I saw, but it was a huge turning point for me in my understanding of what he's doing, watching it this time, because I had matured. I I mean, I don't think I'd seen this maybe even since college, and I didn't really appreciate it, and I appreciate it now. I really, really love that movie. One final film for me to talk about, 2020, and I did in some ways save the best for last. This was the last Faces International Films movie that Cassavetes made. It's called Love Streams. It was released in 1984. This is the other one in addition to Wanda that I bought the Blu-ray like as I was finishing it. This is just uh, a couple more views of this. It's going to sneak into, I-, I don't know, maybe the top top 50, top 30 of all time. It's it's not just the movie itself, which stands on its own, of course. It's that Cassavetes like, thought he was going to fucking die during the making of it, and he just persevered. And that's, I don't know, that's literal blood, sweat, and tears on the screen. And I think it is a perfect movie and I cannot recommend it highly enough. So that's, that's love streams. Why don't you do your top 10 first since I've been speaking for a lot, but yeah. Well, actually it's a perfect handoff because, um, in starting my top 10, I only wanted to talk about Cassavetes, uh, as my number 10 pick, because in similar, how we kind of did this with small acts in our previous episode of putting that as one experience, Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Cassavetes. It just like you have found in him to be my favorite filmmaker. Uh, he speaks to both of us in the way that we see what we want to do with film is what he was trying to do with film is what he was trying to express with his life's work. And um, I think I rewatched every single one of Cassavetes' movies at least twice for our podcast, but also not. There were a few that I just put on because I wanted to go back there. Yeah. Uh, but if I had to pick one, Faces really changed how I see a lot of things in terms of what you can do with a camera, with a script, what you can do with performance. It really helped educate me into what is possible when you don't care about rules. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I get it. So, so you're basically doing like the Cassavetes catalog as number 10. Yeah, as number 10. I love it. With like faces as a kind of like we did for Lover's Rock, maybe is the standout. Love it. Hell yeah. And then number nine, uh, this was a movie that went back to our Daniel Mm. Day-Lewis episode, which is probably our most popular one. Yeah. In terms of 
views, views. Yes. In terms of listens, that still does really well. I hope people don't think we like interviewed him and yeah, <laughs> they just see yeah. the name. They go, wow, it's going to be a DDL interview. He never does these. No, it's just, that is probably number two behind Cassavetes of amount of research that we did. Yeah. We watched them all. We watched every movie in order. This was one of my favorite experiences I've had in 2020 was watching the ballad of Jack and Rose. Nice. I really, really loved everything that this movie did. It was a way we've never seen DDL. Uh, he plays a, a a father dealing with an illness, and he lives with his daughter, and they live in a very specific type of uh, environment. They live uh, off the grid. It's just a very, very sweet movie. DDL delivers a wonderful performance, as he always does. Number eight... A Raisin in the Sun. Ah, What a powerful movie. What a great example of a play adaptation into a film. What I loved about this movie so much is that I think the the perfect definition of conflict is that everyone is right and everyone is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautifully written, beautifully performed, excellent movie that is an important movie. Seven, I love this movie, Greenberg. <laughs> oh, cool, cool, yeah. Noah Baumbach. Um, this is the movie that I think people are, uh, I, I at least hear a lot of a lot of hate from coming from this movie. This is one of my biggest, what I call, about-face movies ever, because I saw this in the theater, didn't get what it was putting down, didn't like it, and then for whatever reason, several years later, went back to it, and I got it. It's one of my favorite Baumbach movies now. Might be my favorite Ben Stiller performance. Mm-hmm. I love the driving sequences. With Greta Gerwig, anytime that we can have someone driving and listening to music, just the opening of this movie and watching Greta drive with the camera still on her profile and watching the streets of L.A. go on behind her and knowing for me personally where those streets are, it gives me a sense of home. And and it's a very cool L.A. movie without being an L.A. movie. Very true. And then this is another discovery that I made during our um, Richard Linklater era of our podcast, Waking Life in 2001. It's questions that it brings about existentialism and and just life and people. I will always be on board for that conversation and that topic. And um, I think Richard Linklater speaks everything that I feel about that topic in his movies. And this is really one that's just devoted to that Five, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, he, he's he been recommending this movie to me for the past year. And it was all throughout 2020. He saw it in February and he goes, Nick, you got to see this movie. And of course, I don't watch it because I procrastinate. <laughs> Finally, I saw it. He had a wonderful take that I love. He said this is his favorite movie that ever has to do with anything about love. That's awesome. Hearing him say that made me like the movie more. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is really great. It's kind of a tough sell if you just tell someone what it's about, but it's really, really worth it. And they shot it in 8K. The color space is incredible. The colors are so fucking vivid in that movie. So it's on Hulu, right? Still? It's on Hulu. Yeah. Number four, a movie that uh, back to DDL, I, I cannot stop telling people about this movie enough, A Room with a View. Yes. It's just so fucking good. And I don't like... It's funny because basically the last two movies I just referenced were kind of period movies. And 
I, not that I don't like period movies, but they're always sort of like a sell. Mm-hmm. And once I settle in, you know, the story takes over from there. And and you've got a performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. It's a small supporting performance, unlike anything I've ever seen him do. But just a delightful movie. It's always the word I come back to with a delightful. Number three, you're going to love this, Thelma and Louise. Oh, I do love it. Oh, my God. One of my... Thelma? All-time favorite discoveries of 2020. It would have never happened if it wasn't for you. It would have never happened if it wasn't for this podcast. And man, did I just have the time of my life watching this movie. I loved every second of it. I rep Thelma and Louise really hard as often as I can. I love this movie. It is my favorite Ridley Scott movie. It has so much bite. It is absolutely hysterical. It's genuinely one of the top 10 funniest films I've ever seen because of Chris Fur McDonald. It has so, so much mood and atmosphere, like Michael Madsen shows up and you're like, yeah, the guitar. And and if if you like, um, we're definitely going to do a commentary episode at some point to go tell listeners about some of our favorite ones. But Ridley Scott is one of the great directors to do commentaries, and he has a great one for Thelma and Louise. So I had no idea that would make your top 10. That's awesome. Yep, it definitely did. Top three. And number two, uh, this movie that... Um, uh, was in our 1999 list that I actually have to revise because um, it was my number two then, but I had to make it my number one for 1999, and it's David Lynch's The Straight Story. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this a little bit before, and I had thought a lot about it. I don't think there's been a day that's gone by since I rewatched this movie back in July, I want to say, where I have not thought about this movie. The bigness of life resonates so powerfully that if I think about this movie too long, I will start to cry. Don't know what that's about. But um, I absolutely love this movie. I saw it when it came out on video in maybe around 2000 and just enjoyed it. I just thought it was a really, really solid movie. But in 2000, I was young. I was a kid. I didn't really know anything. And then you fast forward 20 fucking years. You watch this movie now. And it just, it hit me straight to the heart in a way that uh, in all the movies that we watched in 2020, I don't think a movie hit me harder in the heart than this movie. And this isn't the most positive thing to mention, but it's Richard Farnsworth's swan song. I mean, he he died by suicide really shortly after that movie came out. And it's, I mean, he was such a good actor. He's the sheriff and misery with Kathy Bates. Like he's been around forever and it's just... It's a perfect performance. That's, I'm so glad that one resonated with you so much. And please, if you are a fan of Twin Peaks, Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, all that crazy shit that we love too, go check out The Straight Story because this is a G-rated Disney movie and it is good. Richard Farnsworth's performance is in my top 10 favorite performances of all time. I didn't know that. Oh, I love it. But of all the movies that I had seen in 2020... There is only one movie that could possibly make number one. There's only one movie that could deliver such awesomeness with substance that I could not enjoy more, and that is Steven Soderbergh's Magic Mike. Damn right. Oh, my God. I didn't know where you were going with this. Oh, we're going to talk about it. Go ahead. Oh, we're going to talk about it. So this is a movie that you – I remember when we first met, you had mentioned how much you liked this movie. And of course, me being ignorant, just being like, oh, yeah, you like a movie about a bunch of male strippers, huh? All right, that's cool. And then I remember it was just a night where I was like, all right, I got to watch something. You know, what am I in the mood for? 
I had a whiskey. I, I made myself a cognac. <laughs> I sat down and had my favorite movie watching experience of the year with this movie. It was just so much fun. But it was also really emotional. Mm-hmm. Everything that the movie did from start to finish, there wasn't a second of it that I wasn't on board for and didn't enjoy. And I truly, truly loved this movie. I, I can't recommend it enough. I fucking love this movie. I loved it from the first time I saw it. We got to do our own individual episode because I woke up to like nine text messages from you, which is, is not <laughs> common. All about the movie. You're like, I'm so sorry. Like, I doubted you. Like, this thing is great because it's a Soderbergh movie. It's cool. It moves, but it looks awesome. Very specific color palettes. Very very specific actor choices that he was allowing with the stuttering and the stammering that a lot of people aren't into. I'm cool with it. Not, I don't want to see in every movie, but I think they are speaking how people actually speak. They're not doing these flawless deliveries. My favorite Matthew McConaughey performance. Yes. Seeing this movie for the first time is one of my favorite movie going experiences because it was sold out opening day. And I kid you not, I am not exaggerating. I was the only male in the crowd because I looked and I looked carefully and I sat there. I don't watch previews, so I didn't I knew kind of what the movie was about. But I looked around and I went, there is no way this is going to be what this audience wants. There's no way a Soderbergh movie is going to do that. And there were there were a lot of groans leaving the theater and like, oh, that wasn't kind of like this art movie. And then the sequel comes out a few years later. And it I think it was what that uh, core audience wanted from the first mm-hmm. one. And I really like the sequel, but there's much more. It's much more of a like male stripper movie, whereas yeah. Magic Mike is kind of like an economic 2008 kind of crisis response movie in yeah. some way. Like he's this entrepreneur. It's just uh Oh, my God. Riley Koig, I mean, she's in there, but God, Matthew McConaughey, just when they cut to that shot, when he's getting ready to dance and he has it, you know, the 4th of July thing and his eyes are all wide. He's like, all right, here we go. (laughs) Oh, God, I love Magic Mike. I'm so glad you liked that one. Loved it. So that was cool how you did that. Your top 10 was ones that you hadn't mentioned. And I dig that. Mine, it's going to be really quick. Number 10 for me was The Sacrifice by Tarkovsky. Number nine for me is Detour, that great noir mentioned up top. Number eight, Nightmare Alley, another great noir, going to be remade soon by Guillermo del Toro. Number seven, The Search, Monty Cliff's first movie. Number six, The Hospital, hilarious movie with George C. Scott on Amazon Prime. Number five, Red River. Number four, The Bad and the Beautiful. Number three, Wanda. Number two, A Man and a Woman. Gotta see this. Number one, It Is Love Streams. That is the... Best movie I discovered in 2020. One of the best movies I've discovered in my life. So, wow, we talked about a lot of movies. If you do watch any of these, please let us know at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast on Twitter. I'm ready to carry it out with what are you watching? You're going to go first. That sounds fair. I have not so low key mentioned this as much as I possibly can. There's no other way for me to wrap up this 2020 podcast without once again recommending I Know This Much Is True. It's not a movie. It's a miniseries available on HBO Max with Mark Ruffalo, directed by Derek C. in France. This was one of my favorite things about 2020. Uh, Similar to Small Acts is what I, I believe 2020 to be the greatest work of the year. Uh, I put this at number two in terms of its scope and ambition and execution. 
This is a best performance by Mark Ruffalo I've ever seen, and that's high, high praise. Love this, love this, love this. Yeah, it's a really good one for people to dive into. Yeah. Intense. I don't know if Derek C. and France is going to be... He has a very specific style that's very moody, very intense, and I hope he still gets to do that on film, but if HBO is going to let him do it for eight hours, I'm going to watch that too, so that's cool with me. Yeah. My pick is not a 2020 watch, but it is a very early contender for what will be the best rewatch of 2021, movie I'd seen a lot, but I hadn't seen in well over 10 years that I watched a few nights ago, and that is Brokeback Mountain. It's not really a novelty to talk about Brokeback Mountain. It's a very popular movie. It was always my favorite movie of 2005, so I've loved this for a long time, but I hadn't seen it in a while, and whew, that was um, that is a genuine, bona fide fucking masterpiece of a movie with a truly all-timer performance from Heath. He's There isn't a misstep in Heath and Jake, not a single one, and the the pacing of the movie is so deliberate, but it still moves. And I was watching it the whole time and I'm like, man, we're really covering 20 years here. And what specific moments he chose to highlight from these two lives? What It's the moments that don't often get shown a lot. And then there are some huge defining, like life-defining big moments, but it's a really perfect movie with a, just a gutting last 20 minutes that hit uh. in a, in a, much, much different way now with Heath being gone. But, you know, you're watching this and, and you're like, man, he just died three years later. And whew, we're talking about Cliff. We're talking about James Dean, Brando. This guy deserves to be in those ranks because mm-hmm. in watching him, I was really studying him carefully. It it was just, it's a really breathtaking performance. And he was in the hand of a tough director, Ang Lee, but a master who, Ang Lee kind of requires his actors to give him everything. He's very adamant. And that he likes to, quote, break actors down. And I think it works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. And this, these are the best performances he's ever gotten. So Brokeback Mountain is on HBO Max right now if you want to check it out. But we're definitely going to be doing episodes of that and Magic Mike at some point because I had a lot of thoughts on Brokeback Mountain this time. Man. It's a perfect movie. And the score. Oh, the score. Oh, yeah. Oscar winning yeah. score. It's amazing. So that's it from us. We ran through a lot of fun stuff. Thank you for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to focus our attention on an actor everyone loves, the great Amy Adams. We had a lot of fun with this one. Stay tuned. I am recording. Live. Oh, man, I loved in the episode... uh where you put in the stalker bit at the end. Oh yeah, because as like the as like the outtake. Yeah, we got disconnected. I left I cut out a lot of stuff. You were just like mumbling to yourself clearly for like comedic effect and I was <laughs> laughing my ass off so I I cut out all the pauses. It just put them all together cuz that is sometimes how we arrive at our what are you watching? Which it's every time. It's it's I every did not time. I did not do one for this.
Holy shit, I can't believe it. I neither did I. It's going to come up on the spot every All right. time. I do not this I is bullshit cuz I plan these God, It's the name of our podcast. I plan these so carefully. But all right. Yes, I uh yes, I do have one actually. Well, we'll think. Okay, I'm going to go. Ready? <laughs> Throw out some recommendations and then we'll lob it back to me eventually. Foof. Just like a good tennis match. Let's cut that one. (laughs) That's so stupid. That was great. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I don't know how to go out. I'm like, just, just in, dude.